Our Old Testament lesson this morning is from Isaiah 45, and this, uh, yeah, oops, Isaiah 45, uh, verses 18 through 25. Uh, This comes in the second section of Isaiah, uh, where it is more hopeful in, uh, in talking about what God is going to do kind of after uh, the days of exile. Before we read, let us pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word, which you have given to us, and God, we pray that you would help us this morning to hear your word. God, we pray that you would help us to not only hear it, but to really listen. I pray that you'd help us not only to listen, but to understand. I would pray that you'd help us not only to understand, but also to be changed by it. God, that you would continue by your word and by your spirit, changing us, forming us into the people that you have made us to be in relationship with you through Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah chapter 45, uh, starting in verse 18. For this is what the Lord says. He who created the heavens, he is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it. He did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. He says, I am the Lord and there is no other. I have not spoken in secret from somewhere in a land of darkness. I have not said to Jacob's descendants, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Gather together and come. Assemble, you fugitives from the nations. Ignorant are those who carry about idols of wood, who pray to gods that cannot save. Declare what is to be. Present it. Let them take counsel together. Who foretold this long ago? Who declared it from the distant past? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no God apart from me. A righteous God and a Savior. There is none but me. Turn to me and be saved. All you ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me every knee will bow. By me every tongue will swear. They will say of me, in the Lord alone are deliverance and strength. All who have raged against him will come to him and be put to shame. But all the descendants of Israel will find deliverance in the Lord and will make their boasts in him. Turning into our New Testament lesson, John continuing his letter, 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 24, he writes, For this is the message you, have, you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions 
and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them? How can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, last week, we were talking about uh, issues of control. We were looking at Jesus and Peter and contrasting the two of them and and their reactions to what was happening in the Garden of Gethsemane when uh, the soldiers come to arrest Jesus. And if you remember, we talked about uh, the the car that's going downhill backwards (laughs) uh, and saying that that's how people feel the world is these days. But it feels like it's all out of control. But it's more like the airplane that's going through turbulence, that the pilot has already said, this is what's going to happen. And so uh, last week we looked at Jesus and Peter, and Peter looked at the whole situation as though it were out of control. And then we looked to Jesus, and he never looks out of control. (laughs) And we see that he is actually the one who's in control of the whole situation. And so Jesus speaks a word, and people fall down. Whereas Peter takes out his sword and starts hacking away at ears and things. <laughs> There's a definite contrast to how they are uh, handling the situation. And today, we're going to get more of that. We're going to see uh, more contrast between Jesus and Peter in the area of control. This time, though, specifically looking at uh, how they deal with the truth in times where things seem out of control. So this is, um, <clears throat> excuse me, John chapter 18, verses 15 through 27. And this is uh, after they have left the garden and where they go from there. The Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I'm not. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. 
Is this the way you answer the high priest? He demanded. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself. So they asked him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. What is going on here? What is going on in, uh, in this moment where we have Jesus and Peter both being questioned? And I think the way that John is telling the story, like we're meant to hold these two side by side. He doesn't tell Peter's part and say, okay, he denies him three times, and then we go over and talk about what's happening with Jesus. He layers them together. First, Peter denies Jesus. Then Jesus tells the truth. Then Peter denies Jesus. We're meant to see these together. Um, and once again, this is, my goodness, issues of truth, but it's also when things seem out of control. Before we get there, let's think about the, the scene itself. Because this is all happening in very close proximity. John, who's writing this, is an eyewitness to all of it. He gets to see what's happening when they are questioning Jesus. He gets to see what's happening when people are questioning Peter. And so while he layers these together for us, I think it's also part of his own experience as he remembers what it was like that night to kind of have this juxtaposition right there in front of him, this weird back and forth between Peter not telling the truth and then Jesus really telling the truth and then right back to Peter not telling the truth again. So what's going on here? Peter seems to be operating out of a position of uh, fear, right? I mean, think about this. What Peter has been through already uh, over the last three years, but then especially this evening, what he's been through over the last three years is watching Jesus, hearing Jesus, seeing things he's never seen before, hearing things he's never heard before. He is completely, he is all in with Jesus, He is willing to go and to fight and to die for Jesus, with Jesus. He's in. But then that night, Jesus doesn't even fight. Jesus allows himself to be arrested and taken in. And it's like Peter's mind is blown. He has not received the message that Jesus had been saying. And so for Peter, it looks like everything is out of control. He's not sure where things are headed next, but he sees what's happening to Jesus, and he knows that if he is associated with Jesus, what's happening to him might happen to Peter as well. And so when he gets in there, and he, he wants to see what's going to happen with Jesus. So he goes in close to see, 
But being that close, people make the connection. They associate him with Jesus. Aren't you one of his disciples? Aren't you with him? And Peter, 24 hours earlier, would have had no problem saying yes. But this night is different. This night, things have happened that he wasn't expecting. Things took a different turn, and he is caught in a whole different place. And so he's afraid. He does not want to go uh, through what Jesus is currently going through. And so they ask him time and time again. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? And time and again, I am not. He lies about his own identity. He lies about his connection with Jesus because he's afraid of what it might cost to tell the truth. The contrast, you have Jesus. Jesus, who has already been arrested. They are questioning him, kind of like they're questioning Peter, about the things that he has uh, taught questioning him about his disciples. And he tells the truth. And the reason that he gets slapped is not just because he tells the truth in this moment, but because he claims that he's always been telling the truth. He has not changed his story, and he has consistently maintained the teaching that he has had and says to them in this moment, I've always spoken openly. In fact, he's kind of, why are you even asking me about any of this now? You, I have been saying the same stuff for three years. You can ask anybody around here. Everybody knows what I've said. And so here he is um, being accused of trying to, you know, take over the system kind of thing, whether uh, the priestly system or whether the uh, governmental system of being some sort of revolutionary in that sense as though he is uh, gathering a band of military force that is then going to come into Jerusalem and take over. To be fair, some of his own disciples thought that's what was going on, which is why Peter had no trouble uh, swinging the sword that night. But Jesus has consistently said that's not what he was doing. There's absolutely a takeover going on, but it wasn't a political takeover. It wasn't a military takeover. But he is defeating the spiritual forces of evil in this world and in uh, all people. And he's been open about this, open about what he's doing and open about uh, who he is. I went through uh, the... The Gospel of John, we've talked about how in the Gospel of John, there are seven times that he has, uh, to this point and throughout the whole book, actually, seven times that he says, I am the dot, dot, dot. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I'm the gate for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the true vine. Seven times. There are also seven times that he just says, I am, period. Taking 
uh, that divine name on himself. I am who I am, as God tells Moses. So I went through the Gospel of John, looked at all of those to see how many of those did Jesus say openly and publicly? How many of those did he say just kind of privately with one or two people kind of thing? It's pretty interesting. Because it turns out, uh, he said one of the I am dot, dot, dots <laughs> with, uh, with Martha. I am the resurrection and the life at the grave of Lazarus. One person. That's who he's told that one to. He said, I am to the Samaritan woman at the well. One person. Interesting, both of those people are women that he says these to, revealing himself to them in this way. Four of the uh, times that he says these things, he says it to um, his disciples. Two of those to all 12, two of those to just the 11 after Judas has left. Which leaves eight more times, eight of the 14 times that he says these things, that he's saying them openly and to crowds. Sometimes crowds of Pharisees, sometimes crowds just in general including one of the times we saw last week with the crowds, including soldiers who were there to arrest him. He has been open about this. And four of those times he's speaking to the crowds, it has been in the temple in Jerusalem. Jesus means it when he says, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? In other words, you have had three years to hear what I'm about and who I am. And you haven't listened. Why ask now? Why didn't you come to the temple and actually listen to what I was saying in all this time? Why not ask the people who've been coming to the temple, who have heard what I've been saying? It's because they don't want to hear the truth. They made up their minds already. So when Jesus says this, one of the officials nearby slaps him in the face. And Jesus' response, if I said something wrong, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? We just read in um, 1 John why they struck him. Do you remember? It says, do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Cain is not doing what is right. Abel is doing what is right. And Cain can't stand it because Abel's making him look bad. And so his response is not to be better himself, it's just to get rid of that guy. Because that's the guy that's making me look bad. It's not what I'm doing that makes me look bad, it's what he's doing that makes me look bad. It's a twisted, twisted way of doing things, and that is why they slap Jesus. What they are doing is not right, but what Jesus is doing is right, and they can't stand it. If I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? And then we go back. Back to Peter again. 
So we first have Peter lying about his identity and his connection to Jesus because he's afraid of the cost. Then we have Jesus in the middle of this uh, fearlessly speaking the truth, knowing the cost. And then we have Peter again lying about his identity and connection to Jesus because he's afraid of the cost. I mentioned earlier this is another story about control because that's what's going on with Peter. This is the reason why he's afraid, and it's the reason why Jesus is not afraid. For Peter, in this night, this moment, everything seems like it's out of control. He thought he knew where things were headed. It it took a very different turn, and it seems out of control. For, for, For Jesus, he knows it's not out of control. He's been saying, this is where we're headed. This is what's going on. There's a, um, a scene from a cartoon. It's a, uh, the Simpsons, if you're familiar, has this opening credits uh, scene that goes by every time. And there's this part where it shows a baby in a car, and it's got like the little steering wheel thing, you know, the, the play steering wheel. And the baby, like, turns to the left, and then it cuts to a scene of the car turning to the left. And then it cuts back to the baby turning to the right, and it cuts to the car turning to the right. And you're going, is this baby driving the car? And then it kind of zooms out on the baby, and you see the baby is sitting next to the mom who's actually driving the car. And the baby's just got the little play wheel doing, doing the same motions. And I think that's a good image, actually, for what's going on with Peter. I think at this point, Peter has been thinking he's driving, and he's never been driving. <laughs> he's always had the play wheel next to Jesus, imitating what Jesus is doing. He's like, oh, yeah, this, this is great. But he thinks he's the one driving. And in this moment, he tries to swerve one direction, and Jesus swerves the other. And Peter's like, what's going on here? <laughs> this whole thing doesn't work anymore. This is not what I thought this was. I thought I had the wheel. And so while he realizes he does not have the wheel, this is where he comes back and says, I'm not with him. I don't know what to do right now. Um, I think another good kind of illustration for this idea of what's going on here, control or not, is a roller coaster. If you have, um, I know some people love roller coasters, some people hate them. <laughs> and I think... Some of that just has to do with what it does to you physically, but I think there's also a part of it that has to do with whether or not you believe that the roller coaster is actually in control or not. Because when you get into the seat of a roller coaster and they strap you down, you give up control. You do not have control over where that car is going or how fast it's going or how rough the ride is or any of that. You give that up and you go for the ride, trusting that it is still in control. <laughs> and for some people, they just cannot do that. I can't trust that it's in control still. And so, no, can't stand roller coasters. But I think that's another good image for what is going on here with, uh, with Jesus and Peter. Of Peter, like, he goes on the roller coaster, and now they're upside down on a loop, and everything is upside down. And he's like, this is not what I thought it was. And like, he's grabbing the <laughs> the bar that's down in front of him trying to turn the car or the roller coaster. It's like, Peter, don't you know? You have never been in control. 
but things have never been out of control. This is what Peter needs to hear. There's this thing about the rooster. You catch the rooster thing? That's what's on the bulletin cover. This is what uh, ends the whole passage where it says, again, Peter denied it, and at that, moment, at that moment, a rooster began to crow. So what? Why does it matter that a rooster is crowing? Well, it matters because earlier that night, this is in John 13, uh, Jesus has just said, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. And Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And here we are a few chapters later, just a few hours later. And Peter has gone from, I will lay down my life for you, to saying, I am not even with him. And then the rooster crows. This rooster crowing is like the original wake-up call, right? That's what rooster crows do. They wake people up in the morning. This is a wake-up call, though, for Peter spiritually. When this rooster crows, it is not just any rooster crowing. This is the wake-up call for Peter spiritually that reminds him of who he thought he was, but who Jesus knew he was. That wake-up call of Peter thinking he was in control and Jesus knowing, Peter, you're not in control. And now Peter having this wake-up call moment where he has just done what he thought he would never, ever do. So for us, there are issues here, obviously, of truth. There's also issues of control. Every, um, every Sunday morning, every morning really, but especially every Sunday morning, is another opportunity for a wake-up call for us spiritually to remember what is true, but also to remember that we are not in control and things are never out of control. That's hard. That's hard for us, isn't it? To remember that we are not in control, but things are never out of control. And so maybe you need to hear that wake-up call this morning. Or maybe you're like I was this morning where the, uh, the night has been long and the morning seems to come too early and the alarm goes off, and oh, the snooze bar. <laughs> I think too many people hit the snooze bar on the wake-up calls that God sends in their lives over and over and over. But maybe it's time to quit hitting the snooze bar and to actually wake up to actually get up and live in a world where he really is in control, and we believe that. <laughs> where he really is the truth, and we believe that. 
and where instead of denying him in the things that we do and the things that we say, because we get afraid of what it might cost, maybe instead we actually follow him in the way that he leads. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.